0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters.
1: We knew the case would get media attention because of the parties. I mean, representing Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, an actress herself. I don't think we we fully appreciated how much of a role the cameras were going to play, especially in the lawyers' personal lives and our professional lives, but
0: we knew that it would garner attention. Hello. This is your host, Lauren Sobel. And thanks for joining us for another episode of The Hearing, where we like to share our conversations with interesting people about legal happenings around the world. This episode's guest had me a bit starstruck, as cliche as that sounds because she not only represents celebrities, but she's also a bit of a celebrity in her own right. And I am talking about US lawyer Camille Vasquez, who rose to fame in no small part because of the way she commanded the courtroom while representing Johnny Depp in his televised defamation trial against Amber Heard. As you'd expect, the Depp trial definitely was a topic of conversation during the episode. Camille shared her views on some of the issues the trial raised about gender roles, cancel culture, and the court of public opinion. We also covered things like why the color of your outfit can be just as important as your legal arguments in a courtroom. And spoiler alert, it's because you can get judged on both. We also talked about life after the Depp trial for Camille and her accomplishments since then. While her list of accomplishments is impressive, what impressed me more was how easy she was to talk to and how clearly passionate she is about her work and being in the courtroom. I really, really enjoyed talking to her, and I hope you enjoy the episode. The Hearing. Welcome, uh, Camille, and thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast today. I know you are um, very busy, so we really appreciate you making time for us. Thank you so much for having me, Lauren. I've been really looking forward to this. Me as well. So a lot of people, especially in the U.S., know who you are because you happen to represent um, a little-known celebrity named Johnny Depp. Um, But before we get there, um, for the few people left in the world who uh, maybe don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. I'm a partner at Brown Rudnick, and I'm
1: also one of the co-chairs of the Brand and Reputation Management Group, um, which spans both litigation, corporate matters, and um, advises clients, both you know, high net worth individuals, celebrities, and corporations, on their messaging and branding when they are in crisis or when they are not in crisis.
0: As hinted before, I think people probably know you best so far. Um, and I say so far because I think there's a lot ahead for you. Um for the Johnny um, Depp-Amber Heard defamation trial in the U.S. Um, And since we have listeners all over the world um, who may not know about the case, can you you tell us a little bit about the case and and the outcome?
1: Absolutely. It was a defamation matter that Mr. Depp filed in Virginia, Fairfax County, Virginia, specifically against his ex-wife for um, an article, an op-ed that she published in the Washington Post, where she alleged that she was his victim of domestic violence and sexual violence. It was a successful verdict for Mr. Depp. He was awarded $15 million in damages.
0: And congratulations on, on that outcome and all of your work on the case. I um, particularly enjoyed watching you in action on TV. And um, I was um, especially impressed because at the time you were an associate and it's not every day you see associates at law firms perform the way you did. So um, really kudos to you. It was incredible to watch. Oh, Thank you very much, Lauren you mentioned you know your trial team in in many of the interviews you've given so can you talk to us a little bit about that team and and tell us how did that team come together it was a fantastic team of lawyers you know inexperienced and
1: really experienced and i think that that's what made us unique um, but it was a young team in general we were mostly associates we had three partners participating but you know the I would say the majority of of the work was, was done as most people probably appreciate by the younger people on the team. And, um, they really kind of carried the torch forward on, on this team. It was important for both Ben and me, my partner, to construct a team that would resemble most closely the jury that we would likely get. And, and I think as, as trial lawyers, we understand that juries are a never going to understand the case as well as you do, and they're going to come at this these set of facts and evidence from different perspectives, different life events, um, different education levels. They're going to vote differently. Um, and we wanted our team to reflect that. Um, obviously this case centered around really hot topic issues, everything from defamation, first amendment rights, to domestic violence, to celebrity culture, um, cancel culture. And you know, we knew that young people in general are much more in tune with what's happening in society these days. And so we wanted the team to reflect the jury pool and the people that were most vocal and talking about these issues on social media and in the media in general and our team was constructed based on that we had women we had men we had people that vote differently um, that are religious that are not um, and but they had one thing in common which was that we all believed in our client And we believed that he was innocent of these allegations. And that was also incredibly important to both Ben and me, that we wanted people that believed in him and were willing to zealously advocate for him.
0: So for our listeners around the world who uh, maybe don't realize that there was a UK case, can you talk about, I guess, the parties in the case and why you think the outcome differed than the US case?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Mr. Depp brought a libel action in the UK. Against The Sun, which is a Murdoch owned news organization um, publication, for an article where he was uh, labeled a wife beater. And in that action, he did not sue, misheard. And as probably a lot of listeners can appreciate, when someone isn't a party to a litigation, their disclosure obligations, their discovery obligations are going to be different. Third parties have less disclosure obligations when they're third parties in a litigation. So Ms. Heard, we say, was, was merely a witness. And, you know, she could pick and choose the evidence to give to the son without the requirements imposed on her in the U.S. litigation. And there were a number of other differences. It wasn't a jury trial. It was just one decider of fact, the, the judge. and. Um, there was no expert testimony in the UK. And I think most significantly, the way that the UK system operates is you do not give direct testimony evidence when you are a party or a witness. That is submitted through in writing through declarations. And you only give evidence in court on cross-examination. And so it really doesn't allow the witness to develop their story before being challenged by evidence. I think for those reasons, all those reasons, lack of jury, you know, no expert testimony, Ms. Heard didn't have the same disclosure obligations as she did in the U.S. And the fact that Mr. Depp was never ever able to tell his story while under oath in the witness box, I think all of that played a huge role in the outcome, which was not the outcome that we would have preferred.
0: Yeah. I mean, those are certainly critical differences than, than you know, the U.S. system. And it's something I want to come back to. Um, it, it plays into a CLE I attended and and something that happened in the CLE, which which we'll get back to. But first, I wanted to switch back to the U.S. case um, because I think um, there were many things that made it unique, obviously. But, but to me, one of the bigger ones was the fact that the case was televised. Um, you know, that's not something that happens every day for most litigators. Did you know ahead of time that the that the trial would be televised?
1: We knew maybe two months before, when there were a number of applications made by different or- news organizations to the court, and it was every jurisdiction is different in terms of allowing cameras, but it usually the decision usually lies with the, the judge, and in this situation, Judge Escarotti wanted before, before ruling on whether she was going to allow any news organizations into the trial and and for it to be televised. um, She allowed the parties to state their positions to her before she made her, her ruling. And, you know, our instruction from, from Mr. Depp was, was very clear. He, he was all about transparency. And, you know, this was a defamation case where, he was saying that what Ms. Heard very publicly had called him and had told the world that you know, she was his victim of, of both domestic and sexual violence was untrue. And so for him, it was incredibly important to get out the truth of the situation and, and to be able to tell his story once and for all.
0: Did you do anything differently knowing um, that the case would be televised, uh, I guess, from a litigation perspective, something different than you would have done if it was just a run-of-the-mill case?
1: No, not really. And I know that's probably hard to believe, but I think, again, the listeners can probably appreciate, we knew the case would get media attention because of the parts. I mean, representing Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, an actress herself, you know, we knew that it would get and garner a lot of media attention. I don't think we, we fully appreciated how how much of a role the cameras were going to play, especially in the lawyers' personal lives um, and mm-hmm. our professional lives. But we knew that it would garner attention. So we prepared for it in the sense that it, it probably encouraged us to over-prepare and to know this evidence super super well because we didn't really want to embarrass ourselves <laughs> not just in court sure. but we didn't want to embarrass ourselves in front of the world either but i wouldn't say that we did anything particularly different knowing that the cameras were going to be there actually after a few days after the first week we forgot
0: that they were there you know because the the trial was televised i i want to talk to you about something um that You know, it may seem superficial to some people, but I think ironically, when you dig deeper, you realize it's not, it's not actually so superficial and that's appearance, Mm -hmm. um, so when I was practicing and I, I had to show up uh, to court, one of the things I always stressed about, uh, sometimes more than, you know, whatever legal argument I was preparing, whatever hearing it was, was what to wear and and how to do my hair. And I, I was always resentful of this because I think it's a prime example of gender inequality because I didn't see my male colleagues, you know, being scrutinized the same way in the courtroom, especially with a jury. I imagine this is probably amplified for a televised trial. Um, and in fact, I've seen articles describing you as a beauty queen commenting on your hair and your trial attire, almost as if you didn't have a brain and you weren't you know, killing it in the courtroom. So so my question to you is, how much thought did you put into your appearance at trial? And were you concerned at all that you know a, a particular outfit or, or your appearance might affect the trial or, or the outcome?
1: I'm a girly girl, so I've always enjoyed clothes (laughs) and fashion. And honestly, I think in my next life, I would love to work in the fashion industry. I've always really (laughs) enjoyed it, and so this, how I dress and how I, I, you know, I take real pride in in my appearance and being able to dress in the way that is both professional, but also fun and and describes my personality. Um, But there was definitely thought into the colors that I chose and the colors that I tried not to choose. Um, Again, we were really cognizant of the fact that we were a big law firm and we were representing someone that the world perceives as, you know, having millions and millions of dollars um, and so we wanted to make sure that we didn't look incredibly corporate. We tried to steer away from wearing all black. And I know I definitely did because it's usually my my choice of, of color. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Mine too. As a New Yorker, it's very hard to avoid wearing black, black. So I commend you. <laughs> yes, I have a lot of
1: black in my wardrobe. So I tried to be, and I, I did wear all black, but you know during the trial, but I tried to limit it so that I wasn't wearing all black. And then when I had key moments during the trial, yes, I, I definitely thought about what I would wear. I know that colors mean something, for example. So wearing white, all white, was a deliberate choice by me. Um, I had no way of predicting the way Ms. Heard would, would dress that day. But I think she mm-hmm. gave me a gift because our outfits were incredibly starkly different. And I, I think that it, it helped, right? Colors communicate messaging. And I, I, I knew that white represents purity, innocence. And I, I did want to communicate that to the jury and to the world. I mean, I very much believed in Mr. Depp's innocence against these horrific allegations. And I still do. So I, I wanted to communicate that in everything I did. But you're right, Lauren. I mean, it, it's interesting as a woman, I tell younger colleagues of mine that I never want to give the judge anything to look at except to listen to what I'm saying. So I try to dress as professionally as I can. My nails are always done. And i you will probably not catch me <laughs> wearing like bright red or, you know, crazy colors on my nails, but I will communicate certain things through colors and yes, fashion choices.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, you said before, you know, you're a girly girl. I also am a girly girl. I love fashion. I love makeup. And, and I, as much as yes, it was, um, sort of, uh, you know, it gave me pause that, that women are scrutinized in a way that men aren't women also have the ability to, to be creative with their outfits in the courtroom to some extent. So, so it's not all bad. No. And I, I try to think
1: of it as, you know, it's a benefit and it's something else that we can employ in
0: our arsenal. So why not use it? It's a great way to think about it. I love it. I think it's no secret that you, you stole the show at, at the depth trial at the time, you were an associate, and there was a male partner on the case who you mentioned, Ben Chu. Um, but I think it's safe to say, again, that the spotlight was all on you. So I am curious. I, I had this thought, and I, I wonder what what you think about it. If you were a man, do you think you would have gotten the same attention or achieved the same level of fame um, You know, in the public eye? That's a great question, and one I haven't been
1: asked. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, you know, I, the latest example I have is the Gwyneth Paltrow trial where there was Mm -hmm. a male, I don't know if he's an associate or partner that got some attention, um, Mm -hmm. from, from. Was this the Superman lawyer? I was going to say the Superman (laughs) lawyer. Um, and I know he got a lot of attention because of his, you know, handsome looks and, you know, glasses and, um. Obviously, representing Gwyneth. Um, so I, I don't know if I if if had I been a man, I, I would I would like to think yes, just because I I know that we as a team did an excellent job for our client, and I was the attorney tasked with doing the cross examination and doing some of the other examinations that were significant in the trial. But I very much credit my team for supporting me and getting me through that. And it was very much a team effort. So I I think that I I do believe, I I have faith in society that (laughs) whoever the attorney was, if they did a good job, which I think we all did, that they would have achieved the same level of success irrespective of gender.
0: You certainly did all do an amazing job. It was a delight to watch your team at work. The hearing. You're an attorney with a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game, with superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law.
1: I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover
0: to the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. So we talked about the UK case before, and and you talked about some of the differences in procedure in the UK versus the US. Um, I had attended a CLE on defamation, and of course, because it was a defamation CLE, um, the Johnny Depp trial came up. One of the panelists, who was a defamation lawyer, started opining on the trial, and she started saying, you know, that she thought that Amber Heard was the victim, and that you know the trial was shameful because it was publicized and, and victimized her even more. And then, in the same breath, she said, "Well, I didn't follow the legal particulars of the case." But since um, Johnny Depp lost the case in the u k, that should have dictated the u s outcome. Here was a lawyer who was automatically concluding that you know Amber was the victim while also admitting you know she wasn't aware of the particulars and ignored the procedural differences in the u s and the u k. And I realize you must hear this all the time um, from people who probably don't really understand the law or the facts of of the depp case what What is your response to that mentality?
1: I think it's doing a disservice to both women and men. Because as I've said repeatedly, domestic violence doesn't have a gender. And we know that. We know that as a society. And we proved to a jury, unanimously, a jury of their peers, that it was Mr. Depp, in fact, who was the victim of domestic violence in this case. You know, we're better as a society than to be casting people guilty by accusation. We should be better at that. There's a presumption of innocence that I think has been lost in this new age of, you know, Me Too and woke cancel culture.
0: And I think we need to be careful as a society. And in fact, that's why we have defamation law, right, to protect precisely this kind of thing. Um, So speaking of defamation, you um, recently took on another case um, brought by, I would say, a celebrity male client, Rashawn Holmes, um, who is an NBA player. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what that case was about and why you felt compelled to to take it on?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Rashawn is um, just a lovely, lovely young man who has been defamed by his ex-wife and the Sacramento Bee. And the writer specifically. And I think, again, it speaks to cancel culture and the media's, I say, obsession with trying to find bad actors and use and ride this Me Too wave. And, you know, three different courts gave Mr. Holmes custody of his child despite the fact that his ex-wife was accusing him of child abuse and child endangerment. Three different courts gave him full custody of his little boy. And that didn't seem to matter to the Sacramento Bee or to the writer of this article. She continued to write numerous articles defaming him and calling him and repeating these vicious allegations, calling him a child abuser. And that's just wrong. That's absolutely wrong. To take somebody that is a hometown hero in Sacramento and use them to advance your narrative of cancel culture and, you know, men are abusers.
0: I was going to ask you how you respond, you know, to criticism you've received for, you know, representing perceived abusers, representing men who are perceived abusers. But I think what you just said, you know, answers that question. Um, it'll be very interesting to see how that how that case plays out. Um, yeah, And I, I,
1: I think the response is I represent people whose stories need to be told. And that includes men and women. I represent Dorothy Carvello in New York, who is suing under the Adult Survivors Act for abuse that she's survived in New York while working in the music industry. So I, I represent victims of abuse and people whose stories need to be told. It's not also everything I do. I, I know I'm known for doing defamation cases, but I do business dispute litigations, and, um, but always with an eye towards messaging and branding.
0: So you mentioned Dorothy Carvello, and, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you was when you decided to take on that case, mm-hmm. did you think at all about the criticism that you had been um, receiving for only, oh, and I'm putting this in air quotes that people can't see, only representing men who, who are perceived as abusers uh, in the court of public opinion? Um, did that play at all into into your decision to take on that case?
1: Not really. I mean, it was definitely brought up, right? But at the same time, after I met Dorothy, I read her book, you know, I, I believed her. And I thought to myself, her story needs to be told and she needs a zealous advocate. I want to be able to be on this team of amazing lawyers that are going to bring her the opportunity to finally, for once, in a court of law her story so it, it didn't play a role in the sense of oh I only represent men because I don't I represent people that mm-hmm. need their stories told and and who whom I believe and I, I take my time to get to know my clients and and listen to their stories and I ask the tough questions it's absolutely important that I ask the tough questions and that I believe them I, I never want to represent someone who you know I, I don't believe or I don't feel is worthy of my help.
0: You know, I mentioned these CLEs. I think the depth trial has come up in nearly every CLE I have attended this year <laughs> in some shape or form, <laughs> um, not just on defamation, social media, you know, women in the law. How does it feel to be a, a role model and and the star lawyer of a case that is now, you know, being used to teach other lawyers? It's
1: such an honor, Lauren. I mean, I never I became a lawyer because there's a lot of us. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I've never sought out to be famous by any means, but I really do love what I get to do every day. I, When I look in the mirror, I don't know that there's anything else I could possibly do with my life, but be an advocate. I've been a mouthy little girl
0: <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> and someone- From one to another. Right, yeah. <laughs> I just
1: I, I've always felt really passionately about you know, any wrongs that need to be made right. And I get to do that for a living and get paid to do it. I mean, it's such an honor. And again, I didn't go to the best law school. I, you know, in terms of ranking, I went to an excellent law school and they they taught me a tremendous amount. And I'm so grateful, but I'm saying in terms of, you know, the best meaning in, in quotes, you know, based on rankings, I didn't go to the highest ranked law school. I did not... Um, you know, take the white shoe job straight out of law school. My path has been, you know, I've had twists and turns and, and I lost my first trial that I ever did. And all those were lessons for where I am today. And, and I think, again, if I could encourage women and especially women that come from disadvantaged backgrounds or women of color to pursue their passions, no matter what it is, whether it's law, medicine, you know, being a writer, working in the fashion industry, whatever it is, whatever you set your mind to, if I can encourage young women to to go after their dreams, all the better. You know, if I'm famous because I did my job and I did my job well, I would rather be known for that than for being a beauty queen or a skirt, as I've been called.
0: (laughs) unfortunate (laughs) characterization. Um, but, but I think that's wonderful. And I, I think you probably have a lot of young women out there looking up to you right now. So, um, so yeah, congratulations on that too, because that's, that's pretty amazing. I had seen, um, an interview that you had done about jury selection, um, and, and sort of what went into play when you were thinking about your ideal jury. Um, In that, you had mentioned, you know, women are often more critical of other women. And it made me wonder, have you had, you know, specific experiences before that trial that, that, you know, made you sort of come to that conclusion? Short answer, yes. (laughs) Okay, fair, fair. Yes. Um,
1: I think women are really tough on one another. And that's something that we should all be working to be better at
0: um i can say i've experienced the same and on the flip side as i think you've also experienced women can be such an amazing support system and yeah. and as you've proven role model so um i think it's fair to to share it from both sides yeah so social media is another area i wanted to touch on particularly because so much of what you do is is brand management and reputation um how do you advise your clients with respect to social, medias, uh, social media these days? Because I imagine that, that must take up a huge amount of time, particularly when you're dealing with celebrity clients. So how do you approach it?
1: I think every situation is unique. And, and I think that a lot of it comes down to education. So I recently developed with our marketing department here at the firm a program to teach um, athletes actually about social media and their brand and messaging and how that translates into i mean really everything right <laughs> that their brand mm-hmm. is so incredibly important to um, any type of deals that they have outside of, of their profession um, as as professional athletes and like endorsement deals um and you know other other type of, of um business opportunities for them, and also the effect that they have because they are role models. They're role models for their fans and for you know people in their communities. So it comes down to education across the board. It's about educating them. and then it's about figuring out what this person's brand is. And we can take Johnny as a perfect example. So we worked very closely with a um, really strategic PR company leading up to the trial and then after the trial, um, who really helped craft, who is Johnny Depp? He's an actor, he's a musician, he's a father, he's a very charitable person. And we really wanted to keep the focus on that as we were going and preparing for the trial. And it's about developing the brand and making sure to highlight that in everything that we do. Yes, litigation crisis, that's going to be a blip, you know, in their lives. And it's going Mm -hmm. to be a blip on the Google search. Hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully. Right. Hopefully. But how do we navigate that blip, that crisis, so that the person can continue on once that crisis is resolved? And it really comes down to developing the brand and educating the client around that brand and keep highlighting those positive things in that person's life so that they can carry on after the
0: crisis. So you mentioned this educational program for athletes. Are you actually like teaching classes or how how does the education get conveyed? We're
1: developing it, yes, to be able to do presentations for professional athletes and, and their teams, um, to talk to them about Twitter, to talk to them about TikTok, to um, talk to them about all social media right? Instagram, um, and how to communicate both their passions, charitable organizations, and who they are. Um, I think so many times, you know, young people especially feel really invigorated to talk about social issues. And and that's great, but you have to do it with an eye towards, what am I saying? (laughs) How is it going to be received? And how does this affect my brand? And, and my endorsement deals. And sometimes it's as simple as picking up the phone, talking to your lawyer or talking to your agent and saying, can I talk about this? Does my, Do any of my contracts prevent me from doing so? Um, and if I can, help me craft the right messaging. This is what
0: I want to say. How do I say that most effectively? If only every client would call their lawyer before they did something. That's
1: what we're trying to help <laughs> them realize that they should do that. <laughs>
0: Except it might it might put litigators out of business. That's the <laughs> yeah, only downside. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, can you tell us a little bit the the brand and reputation management group? I when I first heard about this, I was like, wow, that's that's super exciting. Did this exist before the depth trial? Was this something that that Brown Rudnick had before?
1: It did, but it was folded into more of the crisis response. Um, and so, since the you know, I would say beginning of last year, it, it became a, what we call one of our pillars at Brown Redneck. Um, so it's something that the firm is really putting a lot of resources and, and putting the best people into this group so that we can offer this service to our clients, right? We're, we're a, a service firm. It's always about the services we can provide for our clients. And we just have realized that clients are requesting this more and more and more. I mean, they're requesting us to work with their PR people, us to work with their crisis managers. And these crisis managers and PR professionals aren't necessarily lawyers or at least practicing lawyers. It's just helpful to have a combined team that's looking at not just the crisis litigation, but also looking at the brand and the image and the messaging. And it it really comes down to how we write our briefs that are publicly filed, what we include, what we choose not to include, how we educate journalists when we do make public filings. Um, and, you know, even the filings that we decide to do and the ones that we decide not to do, if we don't think they're going to be particularly successful and we have a lot of eyes on this case.
0: I think that's wonderful that you get to do both. You know, you get to litigate and also handle this, this kind of fun stuff um, or what I call fun stuff. I don't know if somebody's. I do too. <laughs> okay, good. Somebody's brand is at issue. I don't know how fun they think it is. But they probably I, I-
1: don't think it's as much fun, but <laughs> <laughs> if they preventively hire us. then
0: There you go. Then it's much more fun.
1: Then it's much more fun. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, so tell us, what does your typical day look like now, and and how is it different from you know life before the depth trial?
1: I would say no two days are really the same, except I'm on a lot of planes. <laughs> I travel uh-huh. a tremendous amount. I, I think I'm on a plane every week at this point. Wow! So I, I travel a lot, but I really enjoy it. I. I'm so glad you know we're done with COVID and we can st- see people yeah. in person and have meetings. Um, so I, I, it's a real treat to be able to see my clients all over the world and and be able to meet with them. Um, I think it's so important to to have that one-on-one time. So I, I mean, when I'm home, home meaning California, <laughs> I come into the office. I'm here now, and um, thankfully I live 15 minutes away, so it's an easy commute
0: in the car. If you could litigate any type of case, is there um, one type that you would choose aside from defamation?
1: That's a great question.
0: Um, Fashion law?
1: (laughs) I I just love being in the courtroom.
0: You can tell. You can tell when somebody (laughs) watches you. You can tell that you love it. I think that's awesome.
1: I love being in the courtroom. I love doing litigation. I love being a trial lawyer. I don't know that there's any particular case that I would love to try, but I'm not afraid of trying any type of case, whether it's an IP dispute, whether it's, you know, even criminal. I, 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 I haven't really done a lot of that, but I did take on um, a client a Yellowstone actress, Corianca Kilcher. And, you know, she was charged with two felonies here in California. We were able to get her case dismissed. So no trial necessary, but I believed in her and her innocence. And, you know, we advocated to the DA's office and convinced them that this was not a case they should bring to trial, that she was innocent of these charges. And they did the right thing. So they dismissed her case, and we were able to let her move on with her life, which she deserved to do. So so I'm not afraid of trying any type of case. i I really enjoy being in the courtroom. And the more complicated it is, the more exciting it is for me.
0: I imagine after you've done a trial in front of cameras, you know, the world is your oyster, and you really could take on any case. So um so that's great to hear that you'd want to also. um, Last question: What is next for Camille? Are there um, are there projects you can talk about? You know, aside from your day job, what what do you see coming down the pike for you?
1: Well, I'm, I've been so lucky. I, I you know after the trial, I was approached by a number of media organizations to serve as a legal correspondent, and I found my home at NBC. So I'm really excited about doing that type of work um, as a nice addendum to my day job um, and mm-hmm. being able to appear on the Today Show and other other programs in the NBC family to talk about other cases that are taking place around the country.
0: Well, thank you so much, Camille. It was such a pleasure speaking with you today and, and again, appreciate your time.
1: Thank you, Lauren. It was such a pleasure to get to know you a bit better. Thank you for asking such intelligent, interesting questions.
0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash The Hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.